Hey guys, we're glad to be back. Just to let you know, this is going to be the first part in a multi-part series on the opium trade in China during the 19th and 20th centuries. Now, how long is it going to be? I'm not really sure. I thought all of this was going to be put into one single episode. Well, until this episode ended up being 45 minutes long, and I realized that we had only scratched the surface of the opium trade. Each one of these I've planned to break up into parts that make sense so you can go from one to another without having to listen to the earlier one. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this special episode of High Crimes in History. This episode is based on the works Opium Wars, The Addiction of One Empire and the Corruption of Another by William Haynes Travis. Drugging a Nation the Story of China and the Opium Curse by Samuel Merwin, and The Opium Trade in China by an Eyewitness by James Johnston. This episode contains graphic description of drug use that may be triggering to those struggling with substance abuse and addiction. Listener discretion is advised. A few weeks ago, I was down at our town market, grabbing something to drink. It was dark already, it was later in the week, like a Thursday or a Friday night. I got out of my car, and I noticed something across the street at the corner. It looked like a pile of something, and as I looked closer, I realized that it was a body. And I think about the moment I realized that, so did a crowd of people coming out of the restaurant on that corner because they stopped and then they stared and a few people rushed over. There's an ambulance station just right up the street and it was probably like a minute before the sirens were coming. The crowd was thick enough that I couldn't see much, but from what I can tell, the body wasn't moving. The ambulance came and began to work on the individual and I didn't really want to be a rubbernecker, so I went inside, I grabbed my drink, and I left. Now, I don't know what the circumstances were. I don't know what happened. I couldn't find anything the next morning in our local papers. And to be honest, it didn't really surprise me much. So this is completely conjecture, but based on where I lived, I assumed that it was an opiate overdose, because that's typically what it is. Katie and I live in rural Ohio, and I truly can't remember how many times I've driven past a street corner with this exact same scenario playing out. An unconscious individual, a throng of people, ambulance services doing the excellent work they do to try and revive them. And it's universally opiates that are involved. The details change. Maybe it was in a car. Could be a woman or a man. A parking lot instead of a street corner. But it's pervasive. It's well known that our town, a lot of the Midwest, is consumed with an opioid crisis. And I really couldn't even begin to explain how this is just everyday life now. To actually illustrate this, I was looking for a story from, I think, 2017, about the seizure of enough fentanyl, the opioid responsible for most of these deaths, in Columbus, Ohio, near where we live, to kill the entire population of Ohio. Except I didn't even need to do that. The first story that came up was two days ago, and it was enough cart fentanyl to kill 1.2 million people. Two weeks ago, they seized enough fentanyl to kill 9,000. A month before that, enough to kill 14,000. 
And all of this in just one little suburb of Columbus. In one 26-hour period in Franklin County where Columbus is situated on September, 10 people died from overdoses in 26 hours. That's not even close to the amount of people who overdosed in medical services that were called or the ones that weren't called and it just never got reported. I'm not really sure what the opioid crisis looks like where you live, listener, if you even have an opioid crisis, and I hope not. But this is life where it is at ground zero. People here are trying to do their part. I signed up for Narcan training the very next day so that I could administer Narcan, the drug that counters the effects of an opioid overdose. But of course, there's only so much that we can do in the face of this crisis. Why do I bring this up? Two reasons. One, I want to do my share. I want to do more. And seeing as that my job is in history, and I have this podcast, and it's a platform where I can help bring more attention to the problem, this is my best option. But two, I've talked with a lot of people and heard a lot of opinions, and some of them are just plain wrong. Like, this isn't a crisis, or it's not a big deal, we can bounce back. Or, on the other side, well, this has never happened before in the history of the world. And I think you know where this is going. Look, if we want to know how destructive a drug epidemic can be, we have a lot of historical examples. If we want to know what works and what doesn't in combating the drug trade, we have a lot of historical examples. And if we're going to choose a historical example for this episode, a series of episodes it's looking like, there's never been a bigger example of the force of a drug war than the crisis that the Chinese Qing dynasty faced in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Take our current crisis and imagine the worst case scenario, and you've got the Chinese opium epidemic. An epidemic so large that in September of 1906, a Chinese edict issued stated that three to four tenths of the population, 150 million Chinese citizens, were addicted to opium. A British observer quipped that 25% of men and 5% of women consumed opium. And a Chinese appeal to the imperial government claimed at least one quarter of subjects, quote, have been reduced to skeletons and look half dead, end quote. The Chinese had done everything they could to squash the opium trade, a trade that was illegal, but it had only grown in size. The reasons are as vast as they are complex, but a lot of it comes down to what is occurring now with the drug trade. Foreign interference. In our case, that interference comes from the Mexican cartels. In China's case, it came from the British Empire. William Travis Haynes writes, quote, Imagine this scenario. The Medellin cocaine cartel of Colombia mounts a successful military operation against the United States, then forces the U.S. to legalize cocaine and allow the cartel to import the drug into five major American cities, unsupervised and untaxed by the United States. The American government also agrees to let the drug lords govern all Colombian citizens who operate in these cities, plus the U.S. has to pay war reparations of $100 billion, the Colombian costs of wage for the war to import cocaine into America. End quote. Now that scenario, while implausible to us, is the scenario that played out between China and the British Empire and it toppled one of the longest-lasting, most powerful empires in history. This is the first part of that story, a story that involved illegal trafficking, 
drug wars, and the death of a dynasty with repercussions that stretch all the way to the Vietnam War. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. For all of the talk about a drug that has literally brought down empires, very few people seem to understand the basics about opium. Opium has been around for thousands of years, not to be confused with opiates or opioids. The earliest traces can be dated back to sites in Europe that date to 4200 BC. Evidence of the first cultivation of opium occurred with the Sumerians in Mesopotamia in 3400 BC. It is quite literally the world's oldest drug. Opium is derived from the opium poppy, a white blossoming flower native to Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, and Burma. The drug itself comes from the seed pod's latex, which contains about 12% morphine. Workers cut into the pod, and the yellow ooze that comes out is gathered and shipped to factories, where it is mixed into balls 6 to 8 inches in diameter that are then wrapped in tea leaves and dried. Once the process is complete, they're packed into chests. Chests of opium were about 170 pounds, full to the brim with these opium balls. The price for a chest ranged from $200 to $700. Today, the opium trade converts opium to heroin, which is about four times more potent and weighs 90% less. And of course, opiates and opioids are different types and classes of drugs that are synthetic in nature, synthetic opium, if you will, but much more potent. Now, for most of civilization, this has not been the case. Typically, it was made and consumed in just these opium balls. Once it made its way to the consumer, the opium ball was stripped of the tea leaves, torn into pieces, put into an iron pan with water, and boiled over a fire. Once it was boiled into a brown liquid about the color and consistency of molasses, it was put into jars and sold in quantities from one-fiftieth of an ounce to four or five ounces. Different strains of opium were mixed together for different effects. Samuel Merwin, an American traveler in China in the early 20th century, related how it was traditionally consumed. Quote, Your true opium smoker stretches himself on a divan, basically like a couch of cushions, and gives up 10 or 15 minutes to preparing his thimbleful of the brown drug. When it has been heated and worked to the proper consistency, he places it in a tiny bowl of his pipe, holds it over a lamp, and draws a few whiffs of the smoke deep into his lungs. It seems at first a trivial thing. Indeed, the man who is well-fed and properly housed and clothed seems to be able to keep it up for a considerable time and without appreciable ill results. The greater difficulty in China is, of course, that very few opium smokers are well-fed and properly housed and clothed. End quote. Opium is an analgesic, meaning that medicinally it is used for pain. As stated above, it contains quite a bit of morphine, and if you've ever been on morphine before or after a surgery, you know it's potent. For those who haven't, imagine... Being sedated, warm, relaxed, without any pain whatsoever, and in a nice dreamy haze for hours on end. 
That's opium. Smokers were divided into two categories, those who smoked to relieve the pain and misery of daily life, and those who smoked to relieve the pain and misery of opium withdrawals. Only the upper classes smoked for social reasons. A withdrawal occurs several hours after the effects wear off. As the body detoxes, everything goes haywire. Anxiety and pain rush back into the system, the heart rate skyrockets, diarrhea and vomiting set in, and tremors occur. You might be wondering, well that sounds awful, why would you do it at all? Well, I mean, why do people get addicted to any substance? It makes you feel good, and that's what matters in the moment. Furthermore, the medicinal quality of opium meant that it was used in everyday life, not just for getting high. Addiction typically began in early childhood, as a child, when mothers gave it to their children to calm them or ease their pain, and that addiction would follow them into adulthood. Opium is also an expensive product. I mean, a pipeful costs the same wages as a Chinese laborer would earn in a day, and the worst addicts could spend up to 90% of their wages on the drug. Thus, lower classes had to lace the product with things like pipe scrapings, charcoal, and pack saddle grime, leading to even worse effects on the body. A typical opium addict smoked the product at night, then slept off the effects the next day. They worked only in the afternoon, if they could work at all. Merwin writes, quote, The Cantonese have what they call the ten cannots regarding the opium smoker. He cannot. One give up the habit. 2. Enjoy sleep. 3. Wait his turn when sharing his pipe with his friends. 4. Rise early. 5. Be cured if sick. 6. Help relations in need. 7. Enjoy wealth. 8. Plan anything. 9. Get credit even when an old customer. And 10. Walk any distance. End quote. Once a person was addicted to opium, it was almost impossible to break the habit. James Johnston, a traveler in China, voiced his concern in a treatise, stating, quote, I have seen strong minds staggering on the verge of insanity in the frantic and vain effort to save the body and soul from impending destruction. So strong is that appetite which opium smoking creates that to excite it in any Asiatic race with their feeble resolution, sensuous nature, and low moral tone and expect them to keep within the bounds of moderation, is about as rational as to tell a man to take fire into his bosom, and it will not burn his clothes, or to launch his frail bark upon a whirlpool and keep it out of the vortex, or to suspend himself by the neck but beware of being hanged. As the Chinese say of every opium smoker, he is busy making his coffin. End quote. Johnston's racial prejudices are pretty obvious in that passage, although I think if he was transported to today, he might rethink whether opium addiction isn't just reserved for one race, considering the state of the opiate crisis in the United States today. But his observations of its destructiveness are accurate nonetheless. Opium addiction crippled one's livelihood. Thus, for most of history, it remained in the hands of the few who could afford an addictive lifestyle. For example, in ancient Egypt, it was used in religious ceremonies, but only by the priests. In Carthage, Greece, and Rome, large quantities were used to poison individuals in a quick, painless death. 
Doctors throughout the ages used it to treat chronic pain or as an anesthesia. Muslim empires reintroduced it to Western society around the 16th century, and by that point it was being used recreationally in the Ottoman Empire. It is this recreational use that tipped countries to ban the drug, as it wreaked havoc on laborers and lifestyle. One of the first countries to do so was China in 1729. And that was a problem, because in the late 18th century, Britain needed to sell its surplus of opium to someone, and the largest market in the world was sitting right next door to its production facilities. You see, Britain controlled the opium trade in India through the monopoly of the British East India Company. Opium production centered mainly in the Indian regions in southern and eastern India. Britain was interested in selling the drug to in Chinese ports, the largest and most lucrative market available in the entire world. But the Chinese were not simply open to trade. They were the largest empire in the world, arguably the greatest in the history of the world. They believed that all of civilization had descended from them, centered around them. Gunpowder, paper currency, glasses, the printing press, and thousands of other inventions stemmed from the empire. They could trace their lineage all the way back to before the Roman Empire. All other nations were beneath them. Haynes writes, quote, In the eyes of the Chinese, foreigners did not come to negotiate trade. They came as subjects, paying homage. End quote. When a foreign country came to trade with China, they had to get approval from the emperor, who would only allow certain ports of entry. For Britain, that port was Canton, but they could only trade there for a season every year, and then all foreigners were forced to leave the port until the next trading season. Britain relied on China for their tea trade. They imported 15 million pounds of tea in the late 1700s and slapped a 100% tax on the product. Their economy literally depended on the stuff. By contrast, China didn't need Britain. Sure, they traded some manufactured goods back and forth, but overall there was an imbalance of 16 million sterling pounds worth of goods between the two empires in favor of China. That sort of trade imbalance meant that China could close Canton and suffer a lot less in consequence than Britain would. Tack onto that that the British East India Company was 28 million sterling pounds in debt, and they needed a solution quickly. Britain needed something to offer that China had to buy, and couldn't buy anywhere else. And that solution was opium. The British East India Company, which controlled all British trade in the Indian Ocean, wasn't interested in trading in opium, at least not legitimately, but they were willing to test the field. Their first attempt was a disaster. In 1782, they attempted an illegal excursion to Macau in southern China, with around 3,500 chests of opium. The Chinese merchants there refused to buy the illegal contraband, and the British ended up dumping the opium in Malaysia at a loss. Then, China made their condemnation of the trade more forcefully, stating in 1799, quote, "...foreigners obviously derive the most solid profits and advantages from opium." But that our countrymen should pursue this destructive and ensnaring vice is indeed odious and deplorable. End quote. The East India Company agreed, at least on the surface, banning all British ship from carrying opium. But in reality, they set up a complex scheme to smuggle opium into China that ran through British merchant ships. First, British merchants would buy tea in Canton, China, 
on credit. To pay back this credit, they would sail to Calcutta, India, and they would sell the opium there at auction. In India, the opium trade was legal, so all of this was by the book. British ships would then smuggle that Indian opium along the Chinese coastline and sell that opium to Chinese merchants who took the greatest risk of smuggling it ashore. Thus, the opium trade remained off the books of the East India Trading Company between China and Britain, but through their back channels, they established a trade that could run up a balance against their debts. You might be thinking, well, how'd they get the opium ashore without being caught in the process? About the same way drugs do today, through legal ports of entry at Canton, hidden amongst legal goods such as tea. If that proved too dangerous, merchants could land anywhere along the border of China and offload their cargo. It's a long coastline, and no matter how many patrols roamed the area, merchants were bound to find an opening long enough to exploit. At first, this illegal opium trade was slow, for a myriad of reasons. I mean, first, none of this was on the books. The East India Company was breaking Chinese law, and if the Chinese realized the extent of this conspiracy to smuggle opium, they could close trade entirely, and that would lead to the collapse of the East India Trading Company, literally the financial arm of Great Britain in the Indian Ocean. It'd be like Facebook going down today in the Silicon Valley. So the company had to take the process slow, artificially inflating the price of opium so that only the upper class of Chinese society could afford the drug. They also artificially kept supply low, only importing around 5,000 chests of opium a year. It was enough to balance the trade between China and Britain, but not so much that it created an imbalance that would tip off the Chinese to the extent of the illegal trade. But all this began to change as the Industrial Revolution began to kick into gear. Northern England was producing cotton textiles, and the mass production found buyers in India who paid for the product. But in order to afford those textiles, India, and therefore the East India Trading Company, needed to sell more opium, and China was the growing market for that opium. In 1816, the company sent an emissary, Lord William Pitt Amherst, to request the Chinese emperor open more port cities to trade with Britain. At the time, only Canton was open, and if the opium trade, which remember is illegal and the Chinese shouldn't know about it, if the opium trade was to flourish, it needed more port cities to expand into. The expedition was a disaster. Before Amherst was to negotiate, he needed to abide by Chinese custom and kowtow, literally a formal ceremonial process of bowing before the emperor. The ceremony established Britain as a tribute-bearer and inferior. It was the only way to gain an audience with the emperor, and Amherst refused to do so. I mean, can you blame him? Britain had just defeated Napoleon. It was at the height of its power, the largest empire the world had ever seen. Britain didn't kowtow. The compromise, suggested by the Chinese, was that Amherst would bow before the empty throne of the emperor. In the middle of the night, Amherst was woken up and taken to an empty throne room to perform the ceremony. Even through a foggy sleepiness, he refused to prostrate himself, face down, even once, let alone the nine times required for kowtowing. As he got on one knee, one courtier shoved his face towards the ground to get him to kowtow. The other British ambassadors caught him before he fell. Needless to say, Amherst never had an audience with the emperor. 
and this only serves as an example of worsening relations between Britain and the Chinese Empire. For the next 20 years, the opium trade grew. I mean, China wasn't stupid. They understood that opium was making its way to China via the Indian markets, but it had grown large enough that halting it would be difficult. In 1833, the East India Company's monopoly in China was broken up by the British Parliament. On the European side, China was all open to trade, and the opium trade skyrocketed. In 1810, 5,000 chests of opium were sold per year. In 1830, 18,000 chests. By 1833, 30,000. And remember, all of those chests are making it into the hands of Chinese consumers, and it wasn't just the upper class that was becoming addicted to opium. Haynes writes, quote, Shopkeepers, servants, soldiers, and even Taoist priests were loading opium pipes and drifting off into week-long escapes from productivity, responsibility, and consciousness. China's powerful elite were not blind to the mess that the foreign import had caused. One courtier estimated that 4 million Chinese were habituated. A British doctor in Canton suspected that the figure was three times that. The economy, government services, and standard of living all declined because of substance abuse. End quote. If we keep that number conservative, 4 million Chinese is about 1% of the population of China at the time. Most of these addicts were the working population of China, namely male citizens between 25 to 55 years old. If that doesn't sound like a lot of citizens, think of it this way. The United States is currently in the midst of an opiate crisis. Two million citizens are currently addicted to opiates, or about half of a percent of the population. If we take the higher number that China provided, 12 million, that's 3% of the Chinese population at the time, or six times as high as our current opiate crisis. That's a pretty stark contrast. And moreover, when addiction sets into a population, it affects everything, from medical calls to the economy. I mean, where I live, opiate overdoses count for a large plurality of emergency services calls, sometimes upwards of 30%. And studies are saying that the crisis has cost the U.S. over a trillion dollars since 2001. Now imagine, then, that sort of disaster on a scale six times higher. That's what the Chinese were dealing with. It would only get worse from here. In 1833, Britain dropped all semblance of respect by appointing Lord Napier to Canton in 1834. Typically, foreigners were required to leave the city after the tea trading season was over. He didn't, arguing that he was a government official of the British Empire and beyond such reproach. The emperor refused to meet with him as well, so he eventually had to leave empty-handed. Napier, incensed, wrote that the Chinese people were, quote, the extreme degree of mental imbecility and moral degradation, dreaming themselves to be the only people on earth and being entirely ignorant of the theory and practice of international law, end quote. When the Chinese Viceroy of Canton retaliated with a partial embargo of British imports, Napier followed up 
with a public declaration posted to the Chinese citizens of Canton that said, quote, Thousands of industrious Chinese must suffer ruin and discomfort through the perversity of their government. End quote. As you can imagine, the Chinese weren't exactly happy with that. The emperor responded with an edict that stated, quote, A lawless foreign slave, Lord Napier, has issued a notice. We do not know how such a savage barbarian dog can have had the audacity to call himself a government official. Through a savage from beyond the pale, his sense of propriety would have restrained him from such an outrage. It is a capital offense to incite the people against their rulers, and we would be justified in obtaining a mandate for his decapitation. End quote. Things were starting to get violent. On September 2nd, 1834, the emperor ordered all British citizens to leave the city and embargoed all British trade. Napier refused to leave, and he ended up sailing a pair of British ships into Canton. The problem was that two forts occupied the river, and both of them had about 60 guns. That's a formidable fort, but this is the part of the story that starts to play out a little bit maybe the way you've been thinking about it this entire time. Because if you know anything about history, you know that the British Empire was at this point the largest that the world had ever seen. Still holds the record on the history books for the largest empire in the world. Now because of that, you would expect that they would be able to at least field a very good military. And that's so. And if you also know a little bit about Eastern history, you know that the Chinese, for all of their bluster, weren't exactly that great. They did have a lot of men, but when it came to the actual tactics and firepower, they're not as great. I mean, case in point. So, these 60 guns, all of these cannons, were about a century old. And not only that, but they were all fixed directly into the ground, meaning that they couldn't actually aim. You just have to fire, and it would go the, the direction it was, just straight. Obviously, because of that... It was very easy for these British ships to simply sail on past and blow up the forts as they go because the forts can't even aim at the ships. Now, strategically, this wasn't the smartest move. Once the fleet was in the harbor, the Chinese blocked the river with a dozen stone barges and hundreds of fire rafts loaded with gunpowder. A fire raft basically is a, uh, a floating raft with nobody on it that once you would send it out, it would be lit and uh, drift towards the ships and would eventually explode. Uh, forgive the comparison, but a little bit like a suicide bomber without anybody in charge of the boat. Basically, if the British actually tried to start a naval battle with hundreds of these rafts, it would be impossible for the ships to escape without being blown to smithereens. Napier, down with a fever, was relieved of duty by an angry British government who had not sanctioned any of this whatsoever, and the crews were forced to march to Macau in humiliation and defeat. The British merchants were gleeful at this. They believed that Britain would soon be forced into a war with China over diplomatic insults that then they could profit from. At this point, it was clear to all observers that Britain was violating its trade agreements with China, and the emperor began to take drastic measures to combat the flood of opium into China. In November of 1836, the emperor issued another ban of the importation and use of opium in China, declaring, quote, The smoke of opium is a deadly poison. 
opium is nothing else but a flowing poison, that it leads to the extravagant expenditure is just a small evil, but as it utterly ruins the mind and morals of the people, it is a dreadful calamity. End quote. Now, there had been many edicts and declarations already given on the opium trade. We've already mentioned a few, but this declaration was different than the earlier ones. This time, the emperor meant business. Quote, Until 1838, the prevailing attitude in the Chinese hierarchy had been that the evils of opium could be best resolved by suppressing its importation and distribution. End quote. But by 1838, two camps had emerged, and they're eerily similar to how people think of the drug trade today. On the one side were reformers, mostly scholars, that argued that the drug trade should be legalized, or at least decriminalized. In doing so, the Chinese could then regulate the drug themselves and tax it, drying up the illegal trade in the process. The other side argued that to stop the crisis, Users had to be punished severely to deter others from using the drug. If you know anything about the drug war today, you know that punishing users really doesn't work. Addicts typically aren't scared enough by punishments because opium addiction is so severe that they're willing to risk life and limb for it. And in the case of the Chinese, they're often addicts from childhood on, so you can't even argue that punishing users will scare others who have never used it because there's a very small share of the population in China at this point. And I think anyone who's ever been through the old D.A.R.E. program in the 1990s will tell you that being scared of your mind only works the first time until you use a drug. Then it's typically, oh, this isn't so bad. I'm not addicted either. I don't know what the hubbub's about. Or if you're not the one doing that, then it's certainly a friend that you know, or a friend of a friend. That's not to say that drugs won't cause harm down the line, just that in that very moment, it doesn't feel that way. Look, the point being, hardline tactics don't work against stopping use. But the emperor ended up siding with the hardliners. Chinese opium merchants and addicts were arrested in the tens of thousands. Declarations of edicts show how much the drug had permeated Chinese society. Edicts ordered the arrest of government officials who conspired with smugglers, remonstrated teachers to stop their students from smoking opium, condemned Chinese military along the coast for failing to stop smugglers and contributing to the illegal trafficking themselves. Anyone caught with opium paraphernalia, such as an opium pipe, would be arrested. In the spring of 1839 alone, 1,600 Cantonese were arrested, 42,000 pipes confiscated, and 14,000 chests of opium seized by July. And that's just in Canton, not the rest of China. For their part, the man in charge of the Chinese crackdown, High Commissioner Lin Zexu, wrote to the emperor that rehabilitation would be the best method of recourse. The theory went that should the desire dry up, so would the market. The emperor agreed, but only to a point. Addicts only had 18 months to break their addiction, or they would be punished. The Chinese also directed their tactics against the foreigners themselves. Any foreigner caught trading opium was to be beheaded. Any Chinese caught would be strangled. As a warning to the British, a Chinese smuggler was planned to be executed in Canton just outside the foreign factories. 
the Chinese built a scaffold with a cross to hang the man just outside an American factory. It didn't go well. Haynes writes, quote, With an iron chain around his neck, the condemned man was about to be tied to the cross when his captors, with no sense of irony, gave him a pipe of opium to ease his ordeal. In an opium haze, he voluntarily lifted his hands so that they could be secured to the cross. But before the execution could be carried out, 80 sailors from the Anglo-Indian ship Orwell tore down the scaffold and used its planks to beat the crowd of Chinese assembled to witness the execution. The Chinese government officials fled, but it took the condemned man with them. End quote. It was clear that this was a fundamental shift in the war on opium, and that was before China's clear ultimatum. The cessation of trade with any foreign government should that government continue to smuggle opium into the country, specifically looking at Britain. As icing on the cake, on March 18, 1839, Lin sent a message to the Hong merchants, a group of a dozen merchants that functioned as intermediaries between the Chinese and the foreigners. Halt the opium trade, all of it, and three days or two of their number would be executed and their land taken. Terrified, the Hong merchants passed this information on to the foreigners. And by foreigners at this point, I should stop and say that it's not just the British that are involved in this trade, Americans, Indians themselves, and other European countries have jumped in on this trade, but Britain was the leader for sure. In response, these foreigners argued that the opium wasn't even theirs to give up. Instead, they argued they were just middlemen in this trade, and they didn't even own the drug itself. One of the British merchants by the name of Russell, quote, smugly announced that he didn't own a single ounce of opium, even though 1,400 chests of the drug lay aboard his ships docked at Canton, end quote. Another merchant asked, dumbfoundedly, to the terrified Hong merchants, quote, seriously and solemnly, are you in fear of your lives, end quote. Part of the reason the foreigners were able to do this from the get-go is because most of this opium wasn't actually on the mainland itself, but offshore or in the docks on these ships, and if any of the Chinese tried to take it, that would be a violation of international treaties. The foreigners were a little fearful. They finally relented in giving up only 1,000 chests, which probably sounds like a lot until you got to remember there are tens of thousands of chests on the ships in the Canton Harbor. This amounts to about like 3% of it. When they refused to any additional concessions, one of the Hong merchants staged a demonstration outside the foreign factories, wearing an iron collar of execution and symbolizing the likely scenario he would soon undergo. In response, James Matheson, one of those present, called it, quote, the most complete exhibition of humbug ever witnessed in China, end quote. After the three days were up, everybody waited with bated breath but Lin didn't follow through right away. You see, Lin understood that any outright seizure of the opium cargo would be a declaration of war, and war was not something China wanted to partake in. For all of their pride, they understood that they wouldn't be able to withstand the might of the British Empire. I mean, we saw what happened when two ships took on two forts. Pressuring the merchants to stand down their trade was one thing, a violent conflict would be a disaster. 
But paradoxically, by not seizing any cargo, the British merchants were only more emboldened. The best he could do was summon the Chinese military to surround the factories, trapping all of the foreigners inside, and wait for the British merchants to give up. Meanwhile, the chief superintendent of trade for Britain, Charles Elliot, steamed for Canton to relieve the merchants. On March 24, 1839, he landed near the factories and raised the Union Jack above the factories. These, he declared, were under the protection of Her Majesty's government. And if the Chinese tried to take it by force, well, you could imagine what would happen next. The Chinese workers at the factory fled or were marched out. As negotiations began, the Chinese sealed the entire city off and began a psychological war on the minds of the foreigners, British, Indian, American, Hong merchants, trapped within. Quote, To increase the pressure on the foreigners, the Chinese endlessly banged huge gongs to keep the inhabitants in a sleep-deprived fog. Food was forbidden to be sent into the factories, and only two buckets of water were allowed, although local purveyors ignored Lin and smuggled in some provisions and more water with the help of soldiers who had been bribed. To underline this threat, 500 additional soldiers began to drill outside the factory windows. The sight must have terrified the occupants, because the new soldiers were their former servants, who had been transformed into an ad hoc militia. End quote. I find that last part kind of fascinating, because the state of affairs inside the factory just shows how much the foreign merchants had to rely on the lower-class citizens in China for literally everything. Many of them didn't even know how to cook, or sweep, or do something as simple as draw water from a well. To add to the fear, the next day, the merchants woke up to signs plastered on the factory walls that stated they needed to give up all opium or perish. And to drive the point home, the factory gates had been nailed shut. And like something out of a western movie, outside thousands of Chinese stood on roofs or in windows, staring at them with matchlock muskets at their sides. The factory was about to become the merchant's coffin, and they knew it. So they surrendered. All of the opium was given to Lin to be destroyed. Over a period of two months, the siege continued as the steady trickle of opium made its way to the Chinese, and in return, a steady trickle of water and cattle kept the foreigners alive. By May 21st, 20,000 chests of opium were delivered into the hands of the Chinese, and finally Lin ordered the merchants out of China to never come back, and they left. In India, the price of opium plummeted to a third of its original price as merchants believed that the opium trade had dried up forever. Lin himself was rewarded by the emperor for his stellar work with two gifts. Quote, a roebuck of venison, which according to court tradition symbolized a forthcoming promotion, and a beautiful scroll with calligraphy personally written by the emperor that said good luck and long life. End quote. The 20,000 chests of opium were crushed by hand, or in this case by foot, shoveled into pits, and flooded to send out to the sea, making it disappear forever. It seemed that the opium trade was forever over in China. 
but Lin had one nagging thought in the back of his head. When he had ordered the foreign merchants expelled, it wasn't just the merchants who had left. Some foreigners had stayed behind, ones who were non-merchants, of other nationalities, Americans, for example. But every British citizen in the city had disappeared. Why? They had not needed to go. He tried to ask around and couldn't seem to find the answer. And finally, he put it out of his mind, stating, quote, Judging by their manners, it appears that they feel a sense of shame. Henceforth, it seems that all will reform themselves and be greatly improved. End quote. He reasoned that when fall came, the British would return for the trading season. But he was wrong. You see, the British hadn't left for good. But when fall came and they returned, it wasn't in trading vessels. It was in warships. Lynn didn't realize it yet, but in seizing the opium, he had just set off a series of wars. A series of wars that would lead to the death of hundreds of thousands and the destruction of the Qing Empire. The opium trade was far from gone. In fact, it was about to explode. High Crimes in History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesinhistory.com.